Uh, so we're going to be in Genesis 37. If you're going to follow along in your Bible, I invite you to turn to that, Genesis 37. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we began the series last week on our boy Joseph, and we, we've got this series, it's called Joseph from Pit to Palace, and we're going we're gonna to trace this life of Joseph, that, that things were okay, and then he ends up in a pit, and then he comes out of it, and he's in a palace, and somehow, in all of this chaos and all of this turmoil, God is still in control, and we're just wanting to get a glimpse of Joseph for a couple of reasons. One is just Bible literacy. A lot of us, we don't know the Old Testament as well as we know the New Testament. So just knowing a major Old Testament character is really good for us in the summer. That's your pastor thinking through how we're going to teach things over the course of years. But more than that, Joseph is a guy that, you know, he he has a bad hand dealt him. Uh, and yet he sees at the end that God was working it out for his good. And so I think many of us who we go through ups and downs and we have those moments that, that life makes makes a ton of sense. And then a lot of moments, the ones that we tend to remember, it's like, where did that come from? We just get broadsided by uh, a phone call or news. And we're like, where, why, didn't, why wasn't I prepared for that? Where was God in that? And what we said last week is this, is that from broken beginnings, God writes beautiful stories. It is the way of every story that is going to have a broken beginning. The question is, is can we see a beautiful story come out of it? And in the hands of our God, in the hands of the Lord Jesus, broken beginnings can become beautiful stories. And so we began looking at Joseph's broken beginnings. Uh, he has some brothers that are, you know, they're brothers, right? Uh, they, they didn't get along. They had their tiffs, you know, just like normal brothers, except it gets all murdery at some point. Uh, you know, they hated him. Uh, Joseph's brothers hated him. It says three times last week in just a few verses. I think it's like 11 verses we looked at last week. Three times they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. They hated him. Like it was just over and over again that these brothers did not like Joseph. And yet we see a dad who does nothing about it. He does and address the dysfunction because his dad didn't address the dysfunction and his dad's dad didn't address the dysfunction. What we see in the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis is this major family in the Old Testament, the family of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and now Joseph down that line. That family has the same problems generation after generation, mostly because the generation that was aware of it didn't do anything about it. And we're going to see today that one of the reasons that they didn't do anything about it is because it turns out some families' dysfunction while unpleasant, can be useful to people in the family. So we're going to look at that in a moment. Um, let me ask you, have you ever had uh, a capital D day, like the day? Like, I, now I'm not just talking about a day where things went bad. I'm looking for like moments in life that as it was happening, you knew from this moment forward, nothing will ever be the same. Uh, if we lived in, uh, you know, like, you know, tribal area, South America, Africa, there's this moment every boy goes through. Listen up, dads, on Father's Day. There's this moment where you need to teach your boy to be a man. And so it's just like, I don't know, they're playing GameCube or something. I don't know what they're doing, but they're being a kid. And it's time, hey, kid, it's time for you to be a man. Yes, father, what can I do to be a man? It's like, you got to go kill a tiger or a bear or I don't know. I don't know what they're killing. But you just like send the kid out into the wild and they put their war paint on and they go get it. There's this moment in time they can mark it on a calendar, this was the day I became a man. We don't have a lot of that in America, do we? Today's the day I beat Halo or something. Like we don't, we don't have that here in America, a moment where a boy becomes a man. Not, not like a, ugh, we, we see it, we, we know it. Do you have any moments where like in that moment, as it was happening, good or bad, it's just like, yeah, 
I'm never, I'm never going to be the same again. Uh, when I graduated high school, uh, graduation wasn't that moment for me. Uh, the summer after that, I just like it never really clicked. Nothing like hit like this is the moment. Uh, then I moved to Dallas. Um, there was a lot of chaos in that move. I didn't know where I was going. I was kind of homeless for about 30 minutes. I didn't know where my place was, uh, and like it didn't hit. But about a week after I moved to Dallas, I'm standing in the parking lot of my apartment complex. Uh, the cold front has come in. It's this first cold front, the first, the first cold snap. It wasn't really that cold. Uh, the leaves made a sound. There was a smell in the air, and I breathed it in. And even right now, as I'm telling you this story, I can remember that moment. And it just occurred to me, I've moved. I'm now adulting. This is the moment that nothing else is going to change. It's such a small moment. I'm just standing in a parking lot, and the wind did a thing, but my brain clicked in that moment. Like, it's never going to be the same. You ever had a moment like that? I, I think a lot of times um, uh, having a child kind of in, in just over overarching, like when when your spouse, I'm, I'm talking as a dad today, uh, when your spouse becomes pregnant, it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're, I'm going to be a parent. Okay. And then it's it's fine. It's it's not, for me anyway, it wasn't like this earth shattering moment, but then the birth. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for this guy. He's here today, so he's working out. But uh, the point is, it's like, there's these moments that you just, you just don't know. No, I think of the first uh, the first funeral of a family member of a loved one. It's like, okay, this is a new season for our family. I think of the first job. There are these moments. You never see them coming. You don't know when they're going to come, but when they happen, it's never going to be the same again. And what we're going to see today is that Joseph goes through one of those moments. We're going to watch it play by play. It's a day like any other. He's a kid in his dad's home doing the things that kids do in his dad's home. And then it goes bad. It goes really, really bad. He doesn't see his father again for decades. He doesn't see his brothers again for decades. This day, he woke up and it was just like any other day. But by the time it ends, he's going to know it's never, ever going to be the same. And the question is, is that is the God that you worship before that day, is he still sovereign? Is he still good? Is he still powerful? And can he transition with you into this new phase of life? Just popped in my head. It's not in my notes. But one of the shortcomings in American Christianity is that we have a Christianity that is extremely vibrant for kids and extremely vibrant for teenagers. But then when they transition into adulthood, there's not a lot of people trying to help them figure out, like, your God is going to transition you into this new phase of life. And there's a lot of confusion, like, well, you know, I'm 25 years old now. And so the God who, like, ate, you know, pies or whatever, I don't know, like, like the things that we do in youth ministry, they don't work at 25 and they shouldn't. But our faith, if we let it mature with us, will carry us through. So Joseph, we're going to see that his faith matures with him. If you will, uh, let's look in chapter 37. Genesis 37, uh, verse 12 is where we'll start. If you remember last week, uh, Joseph is having some dreams. He tells his brothers the dreams, and three times they say that they hate him. They just can't stand the guy, okay? And so his dreams have been getting in the way. Uh, verse 12 says, Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem. Now the first people who were reading this book, as, as it was written, would have just gasped right there because they would remember Shechem. Let's, let's talk about Shechem for a second. Shechem has appeared in the Bible already at this point. This is now the third or fourth time that it has appeared. Shechem is one of the first places that Abraham stopped whenever he came into town, like God's leading him into the promised land. So 
Abraham set up an altar. So we're going to worship God in this spot. Oh, that's a good positive thing. Shechem is also the place that Joseph's sister, Dinah, was assaulted by a man. And then nobody did anything to respond to it. Dad didn't do anything to protect daughter. And so uh, Joseph's brothers, Levi and Simeon, uh, they decided we're going to take matters into our own hand and just commit genocide over all the men of Shechem. Uh, all of military age men have already been murdered by Joseph's brothers in Shechem. Okay. And so now the author is saying, well, they went over to Shechem to just like let their, let their flock graze for a while. I was reading about this. Like, what would that look like? You, you are a part of the, the, I don't know, the kill squad or whatever. Like, like who did this horrible thing in Shechem? And then like a few months later, you're just like, I'm going to bring my goats through here and I dare somebody to say something. And so there's some writings about this. Like some people are assuming that the brothers are kind of uh, leveraging a little bit of like a conquesty moment. Like by the rules of conquest, I've slaughtered all of your people. This land is now mine. And so they're sort of flexing their power a little bit. I don't know. Uh, they're 50 miles away from dad at this moment. I think there's some better grazing lands in that 50 miles. I don't know if you've ever had to walk 50 miles. It takes a minute. Okay, you're looking at five or six days of just walking. Uh, these brothers walk the five or six days to Shechem. Maybe there were better pasture lands. Maybe they just wanted to show off how strong they were, like this is my territory now. Who knows? Uh, but there, there are some jerks in these brothers. Verse 13, and Israel said to Joseph, remember Israel is also Jacob. Uh, he has a nickname. Uh, and Israel, Jacob said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, uh, here I am. Joseph's like, here I am. He raises his hand. Yes, Father, I will go for you. I would love to go check on my brothers. This would be wonderful. Um, I wonder what Jacob's thinking right now. Like, uh, what's he worried about going on in check? I was like, golly, man, last time my boys were there. Whew, had a big international incident. Uh, we had to get the embassies involved. Uh, maybe I'll send Joseph, the puny one that everybody hates, to go check on them. Um, another reason that Jacob would probably send Joseph to go check on them is because one of the reasons why his brothers hated him is because every time his brothers acted up, Joseph was the tattletale. Joseph would come and be the ones like, Father, I saw them doing this thing in the field that they shouldn't do. Ha, 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 get them, Dad, and would sit back and probably maniacally do this like all little brothers and sisters do. Like, yes, get them. Uh, and his brothers just hated him for it. And so here's Jacob. Why is Joseph not with his brothers? All the other brothers have gone to tend to the flocks. Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jacob sees Joseph sitting at the house by himself. And instead of thinking, oh, there's dysfunction in my family, he thinks this could be useful. And he sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. And Joseph's like, yes, father, I would like to go. Verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see it is well with your brothers and with the flock. First, the brothers. Go, go make sure your brothers aren't in any trouble and, you know, check on the flock and bring me word back. Even Jacob in this moment is telling Joseph, here's what I want. I want you to make sure your brothers aren't acting up. Check on the flock if you get a chance and then come and tell me what they're doing. Come and give me word about all of these things. So he went from the Valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Again, that's 50 miles. We get like almost half of a sentence that covers five days of Joseph walking. This is, this is, things are normal at this moment. It's, I'm doing what dad told me to do. This is, this is good, but this, this is not going to end well for him. And verse 15, a man, uh, found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where, uh, they are pasturing the flock. And the man said to him, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers. 
and found them at Dothan. Dothan, this is the first that's mentioned in the Bible. It's later where Elisha is from, uh, the prophet Elisha, but that's in the future. So if your little brother and you're sent on by your dad, hey, go check on their brothers, make sure they're not getting into trouble. They're supposed to be in Shechem. And you get to Shechem, like, hey, where are they? And by the way, Dothan is one more day away. So it's not like they were around the block, like, hey, go check out Walmart, see if they're over there. No, they're another day's journey away from where they were supposed to be. Little brother is like giddy at this moment. It's like, yes, something juicy. They're not where they're supposed to be, and I'm going to get them. Why is it that we can see clearly, like hindsight being twenty twenty, and how the author has put all this together, we can see clearly that there are all these parts in this family, and Jacob is kind of leveraging the dysfunction. Why is it that they can't see it? Or if they can't see it, why do they not do something about it? This is not unique to the Old Testament. Now, this event would have happened about, golly, 4,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago. It's a long time ago, but human nature is human nature. We still have families that have a little dysfunction every now and then. I know, you know, you know, Jerry Springer probably isn't on the air anymore, but yeah, that's, that's proof enough that we have a little bit of that in our culture. It turns out that um, dysfunction is kind of everywhere. Uh, the way family dynamics work is that people have their roles and they play them. In fact, uh, there was a psychologist who studied family units, and uh, this guy's name uh, Bowen, Murray Bowen, and he develops what's called family systems theory. Family systems theory is this idea that um, you as an individual have your own kind of makeup, your own psychology, your, your tics, your personality, whatever, but then you as a member of your family, your siblings, your brothers, your father, your mother, your grandparents, you have a role to play. And those two personalities, your family personality and your individual personality come together and that's, that's who you are. Now, if his theory is right, and I tend to think it is or I wouldn't be bringing it up right now. If his theory is right, it kind of explains why you are a competent, working hard, successful adult. But when the family reunion happens, you kind of revert back to a middle school boy or girl and you're like, hey, and you're doing dumb little jokes. Uh, when you get around your siblings, uh, you start to act like you did when you were in high school, when you get around your best friend from high school, you revert back. And family systems theory is basically saying it's because when you're in these units, there's a role that you're supposed to play. I'm going to read a quick definition, and I'm going to ask you uh, about this. It says, family systems theory is a theory of human behavior that defines the family unit as a complex social system in which members interact to influence each other's behavior. Family members interconnect, making it uh, appropriate to view the system as a whole rather than as individual elements. He's like, sometimes you just got to take a step back and see where are all the moving pieces of your family and what role do you have to play? So as he kind of worked through his theory, he started studying families, he's talking to them, then he starts to realize that there are repeating roles in everybody's family. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you some of them. I don't know if this is all of them, but we've got six right here. And you just tell me if you know who it is in your family that plays this role. Okay. Uh, the first is the hero that every family, according to this guy, has someone who plays the hero in a healthy family. The hero is the one who's strong, who's independent, usually probably the oldest of a sibling group, but not always. Uh, This is the one who's just sort of like his life or her life is kind of more put together and he gets things done. In a dysfunctional family, the hero is the one who goes and tries to correct the behaviors of the addict, goes and tries to correct the behaviors of the others. And they're sort of the ones who are always just, they stand up and they're like, okay, listen, we've got to do something. We've got to be better. The hero is one of the roles of the family. 
Uh, according to this theory, every family uh, tends to have a scapegoat. This is, the, this is the problem child in the family, the black sheep, so to speak. In a healthy family, the scapegoat is, is it sounds negative calling it a scapegoat, but the healthy family, the scapegoat is someone who just kind of beats to their own drum. All the other family members love pasta. This guy is like, I'm steak, I'm a vegetarian, like whatever. Like it's just the whole family is an Astros team, and this is the one Rangers fan, okay? It's like the scapegoat in the family is the one who's like, I, I hear the rules of the family, but I'm going I'm to do my own thing. In a dysfunctional family, the scapegoat is the one who is the problem in the family, that the family frequently meets on and has to try to fix or help or solve this person's problem. And this person may become an addict in a dysfunctional family, and then the whole family is like constantly having to work on him or her. Uh, another person in the family is the caretaker. This is uh, usually it's the oldest uh, daughter in the family, but not always. This is the one who goes and like make sure that dad is okay and make sure that mom is okay. Is constantly trying to, to be there to sit with the person and to, to meet their needs. When, when someone in the family is sick, this is the sibling who's bringing you the chicken noodle soup first. They're the first ones to know that something is going on. And in a dysfunctional family, they become enablers and codependent uh, and try to uh, fix things that aren't theirs to fix. They try to become the, the Christ, so to speak. Um, then you have the lost child. This is the one who just goes and like leaves and does their own thing. Um, you have the mascot. This is the class clown. This is the one who always makes the family joke. I'm, I'm speeding up a little bit. And then you have the mediator. The mediator is the one who sits in a family. It's like, okay, let's, let's get everybody together and let's, let's talk this out. Jesse, why, why are you bringing up all this family unit stuff, all this psychology stuff? Um, cause I see Jacob utilizing the dysfunction of his family to accomplish his own goals. I want to control my sons, but instead of me going and actually addressing their sins, trying to teach them as a father should teach them, I'm going to use the roles in this family. Joseph, you're the tattletale. Go and get them. Here's the beauty of this. I don't know if you, I saw some smiles like, oh yeah, that's Bill uh, in the family as we were going through. First, it's not helpful to call Bill the scapegoat, like to his face, uh, first of all. Uh, second of all, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, all of this theory stuff is just it's immaterial mostly because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the new family of faith of Christ. You're an adopted son and daughter of Christ. The role that your family requires you to play, whether it's functional or dysfunctional, is optional to you as a follower of Jesus. You can choose to operate as a son or daughter of Christ uh, and, and be a better fulfiller of what he has for you. Hey, Joseph, your brothers are gone. Last time they were over there, there was trouble. Go check on them. Tell me what they're doing. Oh, yes, dad, I'm going to go. And so Joseph packs up and he heads to Dothan, verse 18. They saw him, that's the brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. That is not a euphemism. They were really going to kill him. And you're thinking, oh, really though? Yes, they've slaughtered an entire city at this moment just to kill their own brother really wouldn't be that big of a jump. They wanted to kill their brother. When they see Joseph on the horizon, they get together and have a little powwow. Hey guys, y'all ready to kill him? And most of them like, yeah, let's, let's do that. They, they are now premeditating this. This is not an act of passion. This is now a chance to get retribution on the little brother. So they conspired to kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Little derogatory statement there. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dream. So we even see in this that the biggest problem that they have is this guy's a dream. I don't like your dreams. I don't like what you're saying. Here comes this dreamer. We're going to kill him. 
And that's going to stop these dreams from happening. They said, we're going to throw them into a pit. Uh, in, in the desert, uh, they would dig out these big holes and kind of put them like limestone or something to kind of coat them. They could fill them with water. And when the rain comes, so we collect water. And they're called cisterns. And so their plan is to find one of those big pits, one of those big cisterns. It, it holds, I don't know how many gallons. It, it would be, uh, some of them in Jerusalem are about the size of this room, 20 feet by 20 feet, which is this room. I don't know what the dimensions are here. Uh, Jason would, uh, 20 by 40. Anyway, think of this room, <laughs> uh, big pit, okay, full of water is the idea. And they're just like, hey, we're going to throw him in there. And they've already premeditated their alibi. Listen, we're going to tell dad, just like a goat killed him or something, like some wild animal. We don't know what kind of wild animal, but a wild animal got him, right? Uh, that, that will work. Um, listen, real quick, we said last week we knew that these brothers were walking blind because they had hate in their heart for their brother. Remember that? Um, their sin had gotten so corrupted in their heart. Not only do they think it's okay to kill their brother, but before he has a chance to make it to them, I mean, we're talking seconds or minutes, not only have they conspired murder, but they have a, a plot, they have an alibi, and they already know what they're going to tell dad. This was a really fast-moving train of thought that they were going through. You need to have somebody in your life who can point at you and say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. You've taken that too far. You need to have people in your life that can do that. These brothers, that train took off. But luckily, there was somebody who had half of a little bit of a brain cell left. Uh, Reuben. Reuben is there, uh, and he's the oldest of all the sons. He's the firstborn son of uh, Jacob. Um, I'm assuming Reuben, though he has his problems that we talked about last week, I'm assuming Reuben was the one who kind of had it put together. He was the leader of the family. He should have been as the, as the firstborn. Reuben says this, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. I'm like, guys, come on, let's not kill him. That's a bad idea. Let's not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. He didn't say that last part out loud. His plan is, hey guys, listen, if one of us kills him, like the blood is going to be on that person's hands. Like if, if all of all 10 of us, eight of us, however many it is, just throw him in this pit, eventually he's going to die. He'll drown or, you know, something will happen. He'll die of starvation. And then none of the blood is on any of our hands. It just sort of happened. What are we going to do? But my plan is, Reuben's plan is, he's going to come back later after everybody's gone and rescue his brother and get him out of this situation. So, verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. Whew. Really, really lucked out there. Uh, and there was no water in it. So it's a big empty pit. They threw him in. They stripped him of his clothes, took his coat. They acted on this. I don't know if you, if you've ever had some like bad decision making skills in life. Like you, you get like butterflies in your stomach when you do something dumb. You're like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta own this. And I've got to tell dad. And I just don't want to. I wish I didn't do this. We've all, we've all made knuckle handed decisions. Yes. I'm not the only one. We've all made a mistake? Okay. Usually when I make a mistake, I immediately get my, my stomach all twisted up over it. Not these guys so much. Uh, they got hungry. It's time for a snack. Uh, verse 25, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh uh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. They see Ishmaelites and like, hey, 
Got this idea. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about who Ishmaelites are here in a moment. Then Judah, uh, the I believe the second brother of, of all of them, uh, said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? He's like, come on, guys. There's got to be a better way to take care of this Joseph problem of ours. Let's not kill him. Apparently, Reuben's already left. Like He's not there to like corral the, the, the bad ideas anymore. He says, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Yeah, you know, Reuben was right. He is our brother. We shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. You know, like the, the logic here is, is terrible. Uh, this is, this is uh, somebody, somebody should do something. Somebody should say something. But his brothers didn't do anything. They listened to him. Then, verse 28, the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. They have now sold Joseph into uh, slavery. Real quick, uh, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, this is a little Bible study tip for the Bible nerds in here. Um, these are also sons and uh, uh, relatives of Abraham. Abraham's first son was Ishmael. So the Ishmaelites come from Ishmael. So his, his family tree descended down, and now they've passed by. It's like, oh, we'll buy a slave from you. Uh, the Midianites come from the other side of Abraham's tree. After Sarah died, he remarried a woman named Keturah. One of his sons there is Midian. The Midianites are now this tree. We have an entire group of all relatives. They're all cousins at this moment. And Joseph's in a pit, and they're like, oh, look, there's uncle so-and-so of the Ishmaelites, and there's uncle so-and-so of the Midianites. Hey, guys, you want to sell our brother? Sure. We <laughs> see when I when I first read this before I knew that I was like they're just selling him to like foreigners like far far away. These are this would be like at the family reunions like hey I've got this little brother done with him you guys want to take him yeah okay it's just like you just take your brother away and they sold him and they brought him to Egypt. Now we uh, may know enough about Joseph or you've watched the cartoon to know that uh, you know Egypt is the place where things start to turn around for him. But you got to know if you're Joseph and you're sitting in that pit all day naked because they took your clothes away. Um, this is not a good day. This is a day that nothing is ever going to be the same again. Even if I get out of this pit, Joseph probably thinks, how do I face my brothers again? Sure, they've been telling me for the last decade how much they hated me. Sure, they won't play with me when I want to play soccer. Sure, I can't go shepherd the flocks with them, but they tried to kill me. Even if I get out of here, what am I going to tell dad? Is God going to help me through this? We sang a song a moment ago, in the darkest nights you light it up. This is Joseph's darkest night. And we'll see over the course of time, long amounts of time, that God does in fact light it up. God does in fact accomplish his plans on the other end of this. But listen to me, it's going to take a minute for us to get there. I'm going to go ahead and tell you because it takes Joseph a lot longer. And if you find yourself in the pit, where the people you trusted have turned against you. All of the dysfunctions of your family have put you in this place where nothing will ever be the same again. You might be asking the question like, God, where are you in any of this junk? He lights it up. It's, it, it, it does come out of this. Your God is good. Verse 29, look, we need to finish our chapter quickly. It says, when Reuben, the oldest of the brother who had the idea to come rescue him later, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of deep grief and remorse. When you're so gut-checked and you're ripped, you just you take your clothes and you just rip them off. I, I, that would be a great cultural thing to bring back, wouldn't it? Like you're just in Walmart and the cell you were wanting didn't happen. You're like, my coupon doesn't work. You're like, no, you just rip it off. He sees his brother 
his plan was to rescue his brother, and now his brother is even in the pit. He assumes that he's dead, rips his clothes, grieves it to his core. This is what happens when we let things go unchecked in our families that they continue and people grieve it. Verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone. He won't even say his name. <laughs> He's like, I know you guys hate him, but the boy is gone. And, and I, I, where, where shall I go? Uh, he seems to think that his dad is going to put this responsibility on him to protect Joseph. As the oldest son, it's my responsibility to make sure the rest of the sons act right. And now we've lost one of them. Where am I going to go? And so then they took Joseph's robe. Remember they had a, uh, an alibi worked out on how they're going to tell dad? So they start to play through the parts. Then they took Joseph's robe and then they slaughtered a goat. And they dipped the robe in the blood. And they, this is dark. Man, this is really dark. And then they sent the robe, not that they took the robe of many colors to their father, but they sent the robe. So they sent it on ahead like, hey, servant, take this bloody robe to dad and just like let him cry for a minute before we get there. Um, and then they brought it to his father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Come on, guys. Like, you know, this is the robe that your brother had on. Everybody knows it. Hey, dad, is that even ours? I don't know. Is that one of ours? Uh, could be. I don't know. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, now Jacob's mind has raced to what he thinks has happened to him. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. That is some uncomfortable underwear and mourned for his son many days. He is now grieving long days. The brother's actions have completely destroyed this dad, who's already lost his favorite wife. My gosh, that was last week. He's lost his favorite wife and now his favorite son, and he grieves for many days. All his sons, verse 35, and all his daughters, that would be uh, probably daughters-in-laws because he only had the one that is recorded. Um, all his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Get out of here. I don't, I don't want to hug. And said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I'm going to mourn until the day that I die. This is somebody with a heartbreak, and I think some of us have experienced heartbreak and can kind of like, yes, I've, I've felt that. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, verse 36, meanwhile, uh, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's land this plane uh, in a couple of spots. First of all, I want to talk about that word meanwhile. Jacob is grieving for days because he assumes that his son is dead. Meanwhile, though, it wasn't as bad as he thought it was, and God was working out something else on this end over here. He was sold into Egypt, and he's in Potiphar's house. We, we need to be aware of something really, really fast. Um, unless I'm mistaken, nobody in here is omniscient, all-knowing of how all the circumstances are playing together. And many, many, many times, in our darkest moments, there's a meanwhile happening outside of us. In another family member's heart, uh, over here, a dad who's beginning to think that maybe I do need to get some help with that. Maybe over here, that thing at work is going to work itself out. One of, one of the benefits of being a follower of Christ is that we admit that Jesus is Lord and we're not. We admit that he is God and we're not running this stinking universe. It is an act of surrender to realize that there are meanwhiles in our story that we are not aware of. Jacob, Reuben, Levi, all of these brothers, they don't understand this meanwhile. But the narrator who wrote the book of Genesis, he lets us know there's something else going on on this back end. I just want to encourage you all that as you find yourself in a pit, as you find yourself grieving, as you find yourself with the uncomfortable underwear of your broken heart, um, there's a meanwhile very often that our God is working it out. 
The brothers, their plan is that they're going to slaughter a goat and they're going to dip the coat in blood and they're going to give it to their dad, Jacob. And it's like, man, that was a really fast plan. Where did you come up with that plan? Well, fun fact, um, Jacob, when he wanted to trick his dad, uh, Jacob and his mom slaughtered a goat and he put goat fur on his hands. He's like, here, dad, look. And like blind dad's like, yes, you are my son Esau. He lied to him using a goat. The very same method of deception Jacob used on his dad, his sons used on him and he fell for it. Because family dysfunctions tend to kind of find their thread all the way through until one generation says, no, we're not going to do that. Or God throws one member of the family into Egypt and rescues the family. That's next week and weeks after that. My point is this. Um, Jacob is dealing with the same problems he was um, exploiting as a younger person. Joseph should not have ever been sent to go check on his brothers. Dad should have gone himself if he was worried, if he thought there was a problem, but still murder is murder and his brothers did this thing. So here's, here's what we're left with. Like what in the world are we supposed to do with this meanwhile? That, that there is a meanwhile that God is working out something on the other end. Romans, um, Excuse me, before Romans comes up here, I want to read a couple more passages. Like, how, how is it that God is in control, which is what we're celebrating, and we really haven't even mentioned the word God in this series. Like, how can God use the brokenness of other people? The psalmist in Psalm 77, this won't be behind you, but 76, excuse me, 7610 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath will be put on you like a belt. The psalmist is saying, the, the things that men do to be wrathful and evil God, you are bigger than that, and you can use that to accomplish your own things. Now, this is a theology of God's sovereignty. Like, how is it that bad things happen to me, and and God is still sovereign? Well, it turns out that in the free will of the world, he allows the brothers to act sinfully, but his ultimate plan is that Joseph will redeem his family. He could have done it differently, uh, but because of the brother's sin, Joseph ends up in Egypt, but God still finishes his story the way that he wants. Listen to this. In Isaiah Chapter 14, the book of Isaiah, he's a prophet. He's like, he's trying to explain to them, hey, we're about to be conquered by Assyria. Um, just know that God knows us. But God is going to use Assyria to accomplish his goals and then later judge Assyria for, for doing it inappropriately. Uh, chapter 14, verse 24 says this, the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. He says, I don't care how bad Assyria is going to be. What I want to get done will eventually get done. What the Lord wants to get done in your life, the promise is he's going to get done in his life. And you don't have a person in your life that is evil enough to undo the plans of our God. Which is why Romans, and this will come up behind us, Romans uh, 8 is so important here. Because we use this verse so often to, to you know... Um, we use this verse so often, almost like a, a quick, like, well, it's all going to work out eventually. But you have to understand, it's written in a way of like brokenness and desperation. Romans 8, 26 begins this way. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness when, when we're weak. Have you ever been weak? Joseph's weak in this moment. Jacob's weak in this moment. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When the world hits you so hard, you don't even have a word to put to it. You can just groan and the spirit of God can translate that groan. You're just like, the world is hitting you really hard. It's, 
Holy Spirit's like, I got you, boo. And just like tells the Lord what you were praying in that moment. The Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit knows what God is thinking, how God is going to work this out. But listen to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. See, that verse is not written for the cheap moments where you're like at Astroworld, or and that doesn't even exist anymore. You're at Six Flags, and, and you're just like, oh, this is great. All things work together for those, you know. No, all things work together for good, for those who trust the Lord Jesus. The, the point is this, is that it's in these moments of suffering, we have hope in a God whose story that has a good ending will come to pass. He will see what he wants done, done. Philippians says that be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He will finish his story. And so what I want to say is that in your story and Joseph's story is that broken characters and chaotic chapters, just like in this story, they're in every story, in every single story. They all have them. But a good author causes the story to unfold. Our Father will see this story to the end. Every good story has these chaotic moments. I mean, think of Bambi. My gosh. It's like children's cartoon. 30 seconds in, mom dies or dad. I don't know who got shot. Somebody gets shot at the beginning of Bambi, and then the rest of the story unfolds from that. That is a chaotic chapter. Good stories don't end on chaotic chapters. Good stories don't. I have, a, I have a book. I don't have time to tell that story. Anyway, good stories don't end on chaotic chapters. And if you find yourself in a chaotic chapter, that just means your story's not done yet. Because a good author will see the story unfold completely. And hear me really quick. For all the cynics in here, I'm a cynic as well. I'm not just like doing spiritual platitudes and euphemisms like, hey, it's all going to work out in the end. I'm talking about a God who makes this promise. I will see my purposes through and my purposes are good. My purposes for you are good. He does not promise there will not be suffering. In fact, he does the opposite. He says, I will not leave you alone in your suffering. Lo, I will be with you until the end of the age, Jesus says. The promise isn't that you're not going to have chaotic chapters. The promise is that he's going to see the story through to a good place. So let me pray for you. Um, we'll watch the cue together. I pray that that's a... Uh, an anchor for you if you find yourself in a pit. Father, uh, this morning, this morning we come to you with the story of Joseph. Uh, we thank you that it's preserved and, and kept. Um, Lord, we admit there are times where we feel like we've been knocked down. We feel like our brothers have come up against us or our sisters or our loved ones. Um, we, we admit, Father, that there are moments of chaos in our lives, some that we played a part in and some that just, God, they come out of nowhere. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see that your story is still unfolding, that our hope would not be quenched, um, and that we would rest in you, our refuge, who will protect us, who will surround us, um, and we'll see your good work through completion. I pray, Lord, for those of us in this room that need to be reminded that you give us a glimpse of what you're working towards, that you give us a glimpse of the end of the story and how you can use it for goodness and beauty and for your purposes um, so that we have a, a glimpse of hope. But in the absence of that, I pray that our faith would be steadfast in you, that our strength would be found in you, and we will trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.